While most of us are still fumbling around for pounds and pennies down the back of our sofas, technology is transforming the world of money. Or at least that's what the Bitcoin junkies would have you believe. They say digital currencies have arrived and are about to revolutionise the way we buy things. Bitcoin has long been promoted by tech geeks and libertarians, but today the Bank of England gave its first public view of Bitcoin and said the technology could transform the financial system. The soaring values of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum and Ripple have hit the headlines in recent months as millions of people have got in on the craze. ...described variously as a massive scam, a dangerous bubble about to burst and a medium for some to illegally purchase guns and drugs. But it has perfectly legitimate users too. But recent downturns in their prices have led some to wonder whether digital currencies have fueled a dangerous speculative bubble that needs to be curbed by regulators. Just a thousand people are thought to own 40% of the entire market. It's going to come cave in. It's, it's almost a guarantee. Scammed out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. What's up, guys? It's Cody here. And today in this video, <laughs> I'm going to tell you how I lost $100,000 in cryptocurrency. So, is the Bitcoin boom over? Or was it just the start for digital currencies? And if so, what will we see next? Those questions and more on today's weekly economics podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. Okay, so back on the podcast this week to talk digital currencies is special guest Fran Boyd. Hello. Did I say it right? Yeah. Did I? Yes. Boyt. Welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Oh, you're the executive director of Positive Money. I didn't say it. Indeed. Ed. What's Hello. Um, I'm quite hot and sweaty because I just had to cycle here really fast because I was really late. And so I'm just catching my breath, drinking a lot of water. Lovely to have you. Lovely thank you. you. Uh, and joining Fran, we've got another special guest, the research director for the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos, Carl Miller. How's it going? Very good. I'm glad I'm also a special guest. Yeah, I mean, just about. I was, I was worried there was a guest hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, there is. You've got the crappy mic and everything. <laughs> uh, and we're also welcoming back Neff researcher Duncan McCann this week. A regular almost, I'd Brilliant, say. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, I understand we need a declaration of interest from you. Uh, yeah, so I do have an advisory role in a uh, blockchain-based company called Kolu. <gasps> wow, it's all coming um, out now. So I will declare that right at the start. Oh, drinks dun, on dun, you dun. after this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have half a million Kolus <laughs> in my wallet. Wow. <laughs> going to get into what that means. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, okay, so before we get to digital currencies, we've got our usual headline segment. So we're looking back at the important economic stories from the last few weeks that listeners might have missed in a segment I like to call Read All About It. And we're starting with Duncan. Yeah, so my interesting story is all about the future of data and ads on the internet. And it's been a really interesting couple of weeks with uh, Safari releasing an update to their browser, which basically automates the blocking of a lot of the trackers and ads that you see. Um, and this is going to have a huge impact on the data industry uh, more widely. Um, but what it's also interesting is that it's also forced other browser companies to follow suit. And so you've had uh, Google update their browser, uh, although with much less complete uh, blocking, um, and Firefox uh, doing the same. So it's, yeah, it's been a really, really interesting uh, time for data and uh, online activity. Wait, so is that, so a lot of people now have ad blocker. Is that a different thing? 
these are kind of embedded ad blockers. So we're no longer relying mm. on individuals to go out and protect themselves. We're saying people should be protected as a default. And that's what people like Safari and uh, some of these other uh, browsers are now starting to do. I think it's a really important shift in how we understand how to protect our own privacy online. Interesting. Thanks, Duncan. Uh, Fran? Am I allowed two quick ones? Two quick ones, yeah. Okay. I will cut you off if they get long. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. So first one is we are running out of time to cash in our banknotes that will make it topical, our £10 banknotes. So 1st of March to get rid of your old ones and get the new plasticky polymer ones. Whilst wow. Charles Darwin is replaced by Jane Austen, thanks to quite a lot of campaigning, we are questioning whether the Bank of England is really looking at the role of women in money and banking by looking at the diversity on its main boards. So whilst we have got a woman on a banknote, we've only got one out of nine women on the Monetary Policy Committee and no women on the Financial Policy Committee. Mm. So we're calling on the Chancellor to take a look at his appointment credentials because we need some new thinking in that big, powerful institution that is the Bank of England. Mm -hmm. Second quick one, we've been asking it for a long time, but when are we going to have a pay rise? As we all know, this has been the worst decade on record since the Napoleonic Wars for mm -hmm. wage growth. Mm -hmm. And this week we saw a bit of a positive um, prediction from, oh, I can't remember, one of the government bodies, 3%, but that was... Um, Hard at by a study that was released yesterday by CPID, CIPD, which says it's more likely to be 2%. So mm. basically, things aren't looking great. Pah. That's rubbish. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Fran. I'm glad we didn't miss that. Carl? Hardly one that many people could have missed, but but my story of the week is fried chicken gate. Oh, of, um, course. Oh, of course. That kind of remarkably kind of old school uh, fiasco which has been created as KFC moved from um, from um, Bidvest to DHL as their major logistics provider. And it kind of was interesting because it kind of put into the news something which, which we very rarely talk about, which is logistics and networks and mm. supply. Um, and we only really notice it when it goes terribly wrong. But but when yeah, it does true. go wrong, obviously hundreds of shops um, shut all uh, all across the country. Um, and there to find a kind of desperate link between this and what I think our next topic will be. Um, <laughs> the uh, the uh, the DHL network is all based on one distribution centre, and obviously centralisation can make networks much more vulnerable. Mm. So so mine's mm. fried chicken gate. Okay, and a lovely segue, lovely chicken segue. Thank you very much. Uh, so we're going to have more of the headlines next week, lovely listeners. But now for our big question, is the Bitcoin boom over? Launched in 2009, a single Bitcoin is now worth over $10,000. Early adopters of the digital currency have become millionaires selling it off. But the mysterious creators of Bitcoin insist they didn't design the currency to make a quick buck. They say they wanted to revolutionize the way money is created, distributed, and used. Advocates for digital currencies argue that the creation of money by governments leads to its manipulation by politicians and the restriction of all of our freedom. But critics say that a lack of regulation has led to a speculative bubble in the cryptocurrency market with lots of people losing lots of money gambling on the craze. So, can digital currencies change the nature of money, or do they have the same flaws as all currencies, just with different people pulling the strings? So the first question I want to throw out there, there's a lot of jargon in the digital currencies world, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, Ripple. What are we talking about? Uh, and can we talk about all of these things in the same breath? 
Uh, I mean, I think, I think to a certain extent you can. Um, so the cryptocurrency craze, which is kind of the umbrella term for all of the different types of money-ish things that you mentioned in your, your intro, are all based on the same kind of thing. It's uh, the issuance process, so how the money gets created is done by a piece of software. The mechanisms and all of the rules around that currency are then also put into the software. Uh, and all of those currencies run on a decentralized kind of ledger, which all you need to think about is a kind of Excel spreadsheet that anybody can input in a controlled fashion, uh, which tells you who owns which bits of the money. Um, and so they and they all basically conform to that kind of basic structure. All right. So practically speaking, how do these things work? How are digital currencies created and used? Well, uh, these particular cryptocurrencies are created through computers solving kind of complex problems. Now, the general uh, metaphor is with mining, and that's because part of the uh, community that really supports Bitcoin likes to think about it as digital gold. And so they try and use as many metaphors that allow people to get this conceptualization of it being this amazingly strong, stable currency that people can rely on. I prefer to think of the money being issued much more in a kind of lottery fashion, whereby lots of computers are trying to solve a very complicated problem. You get a long string of numbers. And if that long string of numbers and letters happens to match what's on the issuance ticket, then you win those Bitcoin. So that's really the process is much more a form of lottery than uh, you could think of really mining. I think what's important to realise is like it, it can be designed in any number of ways, but actually who's doing the creation of this mining is actually increasingly in smaller and smaller, fewer and fewer hands. So I think over 50% of the mining of Bitcoins is done by just a few what are called mining pools. Although it's like a collaborative mining process, it's this kind of creation is still limited and is still in control of the hands of a few. Um, from Positive Money's perspective, we're always looking at, in any new monetary design, who has the power to create it and who is, how is that design embedded in the design of a new either cryptocurrency or digital currency. And we're interested in how that is actually democratised to make sure it's kind of done in a socially useful way. And we would argue that Bitcoin isn't socially useful, even though it was created and people got super excited about it, including Positive Money supporters, including my ex-partner, who brought loads <laughs> of computers to mine Bitcoins in mm. our flat at the time. They were so excited because it was a way of bypassing the banks, right? Because after the crash, it was like, how can we do payments that isn't through these big, awful banks? But actually, it's turned into something that is held in the hands of a few and is basically a speculative asset. It's not really a useful means of payment anymore. Mm. So, Carl, just following on from that, uh, Bitcoin's obviously hit the headlines in recent months, as, as Fran was talking about, because single Bitcoin is now worth over $10,000. But how did that happen and why has its value crashed so much in recent weeks? Well, it was never supposed to be a speculative asset. And I think this is one of the kind of great tensions throughout running throughout the whole project. The idea was it was supposed to be a, an efficient transfer of value because mm. you know, it was supposed to challenge government state issued currencies. So if you go back to the origins of Bitcoin, I think it's important that we actually remember, you know, the context where this where this idea first emerged. It was on a cryptographic mailing list, and the people that were on that list were cypherpunks. 
And the cypherpunks. What are cypherpunks? So cypherpunks—they they, they <laughs> they sound of, cool. Yeah, cypherpunks were were really cool. I mean, they they were they, they were a group of people that kind of like emerged and a community formed. You know, who were asking themselves, who is really going to win the digital age? You know, what is the digital revolution really about? They were asking questions about power. They were asking questions about centralization and decentralization of power. And their whole point was um, that they, they could see that there were two divergent paths that the digital revolution might take. And we're talking, you know, decades ago. This was like prescient, important stuff. Mm. They could see that it could either become the kind of creature of states and the powerful in their eyes, um, or it could become the um, a way of liberating and decentralizing and challenging concentrations of power. And they, could, they saw that it was being fought on lots of different fronts. And one of the fronts, which was really important to them, was money. And, and you know, they'd, been, they'd tried other ways of making digital money work, and none of them had really worked. And then this mysterious figure, Satoshi Nakamoto, suddenly posts this new idea for how digital money might work onto this cryptographic mail list. And, and that was Bitcoin. So, it sounds so cool. It's like a movie. I'm with you. Please continue. Yeah, so, so, it was, so, so really mysterious. And obviously, he disappeared back in the shadows and, and left this creation, Bitcoin, with us all. And, you know, over time, and especially, and this is, I think, the great shame, as its value has increased, it's kind of somehow kind of successively morphed from being a, tra- being a um, way of transferring value to being a speculative asset. Mm. Um, and as it's done so, it's kind of lost a lot of the original purpose of, of, of why I think it was created um, and created all these new, as you just said, all these new concentrations of power and potential new abuses. Now, the reason it's crashed is much like its actual initial rise, like, frankly, deeply mysterious. Like, the assignation of value, why people think that things in society are actually valuable, um, is actually a really mysterious kind of social process. I think, really, people saw this exponential rise, they saw it get more and more value, valuable, and then they saw it to be a form of digital gold. And, and, and when something is sure to become more valuable, people think it's valuable. And they kind of chipped in more and more and invested because they knew that the value was going to go up. And when that bubble burst, that kind of dream or that assured dream kind of began to break down as people thought, oh, my God, this thing can actually decrease in value as well. And then since then, you know, it's kind of, frankly, kind of recovered a bit too. So, so the value is kind of popping around like a pinball as society basically tries to work out what on earth the value of this thing really is. Mm-hmm. Franny looking antsy. Did you have something to add? <laughs> no, I guess it's just like um, I've thought since 2014, I think it first came on the scene in like 2011, that it was going to follow like a bubble trajectory and people have been gambling and guessing how far it's gone. A worrying thing is, is obviously the people that kind of got drawn into it late on in the day, potentially because, you know, they're not doing so well. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said earlier, wages aren't doing very well. People have been like putting in their life savings. You know, we don't have much kind of financial literacy, you know, at all. And and if people have been drawn into the Bitcoin bubble and then lost a lot of money, obviously that's really worrying and not not a good thing. What's sad is that behind that is like the kind of idea of technology disrupting money for the better. If the kind of story that people only get is that you know it's just a kind of scam or it hasn't worked, then that's um, a failure as well. So a question for you, Carl, is uh, do you think that Bitcoin and other digital currencies have set out what they achieved to do? So you obviously explained the origins a little bit. Do you think, would you say that Bitcoin's like failed in its political project? Um, uh, and how might digital, digital currencies generally uh, change the economy more broadly in the future? I do. I do think Bitcoin's failed. The initial project was to challenge your decentralized power. 
And Bitcoin has a decentralized architecture, but hasn't decentralized power. In fact, what it's done, I think, is create new, weirder concentrations of power, um, which moving them outside of the context of the law and regulation have actually made them more abusive, not less. Mm. Concentration of mining is one, which we've already spoken about. So there are, there are fewer miners than there are banks now. Uh, and they're essentially keeping the whole thing flowing. They're doing the whole financial system flowing. They're doing essentially the same purpose. Um, but there are two other concentrations of power that I think are important and like, broadly unrecognized within Bitcoin as well. The first are the core developers. So there's a tiny number of people that have what I would call commit power on the Bitcoin protocol. The software that Duncan mentioned earlier, um, that changes. It's an open source project and it changes quite frequently. But there is a central repository where that software sits um, and only a tiny number of people can actually change all the suggestions which are being made around how Bitcoin should improve into actual changes in the, in the source code of Bitcoin itself. Um, they haven't actually really abused their power. They've, they've, they've done very little. I mean, like, the crazy thing is that, that although Bitcoin was decentralized as a piece of, as a, as, as a currency, um, Satoshi Nakamoto, our shadowy, our shadowy <laughs> originator, made absolutely no comment about what the governance of Bitcoin should actually be. So he said nothing about how he thought decisions should be made, and therefore there hasn't been any governance. Mm-hmm. So in a weird way, actually, these tiny number of core developers... Um, have way more power than any politician that sits in any system of law which kind of checks and balances the decisions which they make and sometimes challenges them. So that's another concentration of power. And the the other one is actually the holders of Bitcoin. So um, that's vastly unequal. Hoddle, people call it, holding on for dear life. Um, the idea of just holding on to your Bitcoin and watching its value go up and up. But but probably about, I, th- I think the, the latest estimates are about a thousand whale wallets, as they call them. Um, hold about forty percent of all Bitcoin, and many many whale wallets. Whale wallets, so Talk huge. Me this. So a whale is a huge animal. A whale wallet <laughs> is a huge wallet. I <laughs> mean, it's a, it's a it's a straight it's a straightforward. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, it's a straightforward thing. <laughs> so the, these whale wallets are a kind of combination of like very early movers um, and um, kind of billionaire kind of like tech investors, mm-hmm. uh, or both. Um, so you know, as usual, like challenging power doesn't happen in a vacuum like as power shifts like the powerful are the ones which are usually best placed to exploit new changes and that's what many kind of billionaire investors did and so these thousand people hold a a massively significant chunk of the bitcoin that exists but of course because it isn't actually a currency it sits outside of all the laws which we have to stop people manipulating markets mm. so there's all you know me and duncan all three of us here we couldn't actually do insider trading where we all agree that we're going to try and move the market in one way or another look what happens with libor look what happens with lots of banks you know it happens perhaps but it's illegal when it does yeah but um bitcoin um doesn't fit within those laws so um whale wallets are Broadly, I think, like recognised uh, that they know each other, um, mm. and that quite often the behaviour we see in this market at the moment is, for instance, pump and dump. So, so many great like slogans in the like <laughs> sexy, get into finance. I know so the sure. sexy finance world. They're just like, yeah, it's great. I'm learning so pump much new street dump. lingo because I've got so much Bitcoin <laughs> as a whale wallet. I can actually, I can actually move the market. So I'll make an enormous sell order. I'll, I'll dump 10 million worth of Bitcoin into, into the market. That actually shifts Bitcoin down a bit as, uh, as the supply and, uh, supply and demand dynamic changes. Then as it shifts down, I buy loads of Bitcoin and then sometimes actually remove my sell order. Okay. 
So basically, it means that it means that a small number of people have exorbitant power in actually changing how the market works. So this is not an open, free, fair playing field. This is this is the yeah. opposite. Yeah. Um, so my, my sorry, I, I know I've been rambling, but my, my, my basic point is um, you get rid of the law and regulation. And actually, that's when power becomes rawer and more abusive than it was before. And the un- horrible, unfortunate truth of Bitcoin specifically amongst the cryptocurrencies is that's what I think's happened there. So just one final question on, on Bitcoin specifically. Was this all inevitable? Was, th- was this always going to happen because of the things that you said? I mean, I would say the, the big design flaw was trying to make it like gold, where you've got a finite amount as Minsky said, money is not gold, it's trust inscribed. Mm. And we shouldn't think of money as this finite resource because we should have as much money as society needs. And I think when the Bitcoin designers were like, let's let's model it on, on gold, so you've got a finite amount, that mm. kind of inbuilds a scarcity into yeah. the design, which then, if something becomes in demand, obviously will fuel the price to go up uh so that would be my starting point for the for the problem of bitcoin and for the bubble i think i'd just like to add one thing that that bitcoin has actually succeeded in what was really amazing to see with bitcoin was literally this throwing over the fence of a white paper the turning on of this software protocol which was the blockchain which then started the creation of bitcoins But as Carl said, with no organizational structure, with no governance around how they would build up who was going to take the currencies, how they were going to develop wallets, all of these kind of things just weren't there initially. And so what was really amazing to see was a community self-organize around this idea, albeit that I don't necessarily agree with all of the rationales and all of the goals that they had, but they did manage to create an ecosystem which is now valued at $500 billion or whatever the the total market cap of Bitcoin is, uh, does have millions of people who have downloaded these wallets. Although, again, the distribution of those Bitcoins is very uneven. Uh, There are millions of people with some stake in the Bitcoin uh, world. And they got businesses off their own back to kind of accept it. So I can go down to my local pub next to me, the Pembury Tavern, and I can buy my pint with Bitcoin. So can you really? Well, yeah, is so, that true? Absolutely. Yeah, yes. I, live, I, live really. I go yeah. to that pub all the time. Get some I have coins. no Bitcoin or money, but still. <laughs> so, so I think you know. Although we should certainly hear all the criticisms, I think that was one thing that you know, as a local currency practitioner, that we looked on with extreme jealousy about how these communities kind of self-built themselves when we're out there trying to actively create these communities all the time. I think I agree with exactly what Duncan said, and that. There was a lot of excitement around Bitcoin being a positive, disruptive technology. And that is still there in the Bitcoin community. I feel like that should be harnessed for new designs of of money and payment systems. Mm. Bitcoin is only the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. Whether it was inevitable or not, like it's the it's it's the first it's the first move in what's going to be a very long game. Mm-hmm. I mean the excitement around blockchain rather than Bitcoin is enormous. And I think it's, it sounds so blockchain is a new thing. So, so blockchain is the <laughs> underlying idea that Bitcoin is based on, and okay. the and and within the tech community, the mantra is it's not Bitcoin that's important or interesting; it's blockchain. 
And blockchain opens the door to an enormous range of loads of other things, way beyond currencies, way beyond the exchange of value. Companies based on blockchain, companies floating on blockchain, raising money, investing money, uh, Ethereum, entire organizations built on the blockchain where all the articles and all the constitutional papers and everything that a company needs all baked into the blockchain. Um, mm. And so, th- so this really stands a good chance of not only re-architecting the internet, which is what a lot of people initially thought the blockchain would do, but actually profoundly changing the, the nature of organisations that you come across in your day-to-day life. Um, mm. Whether it was inevitable that Bitcoin crashed or not, what is inevitable now is that this new amazing idea, which this shadowy originator gave to us, mm. is only going to become more and more popular. Okay. Yeah, I think in some way we're in the same place as we were um, in the early days of the internet. So Mm. we had this amazing technology, but ultimately that could only be harnessed by a few. Um, And indeed, most of us found it kind of quite impregnable, um, having to understand uh, coding, uh, HTTP, all of this kind of stuff. But then as the browser was developed, the search engine, uh, and then services developed on top of it, email, all of this kind of stuff, we can now all use the internet without needing to understand all the complexity, code, and underlying logic. Uh, and it's become a really useful piece of infrastructure. Now, if you look in the run-up, the internet was almost killed many times because no one ever thought that there could be any real use for it or that it could be commercialized and, and grown out. And uh, in some days, I feel like we're in the same trajectory with Bitcoin, where we have an amazing underlying technology. There's plenty of potential use out there currency being just one of them and potentially not even the most interesting one. Mm. Um, But we haven't yet built these additional layers on top of it, which allow the uninitiated and the untechnical to kind of get in there and use it safely. Okay. I had 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 lots of Mm. things going off in my head then, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) But I would just be really interested to know, like, what if Bitcoin wasn't primarily about currency, what else would it be about? So I the most in, the most interesting kind of crypto project for me is Ethereum, mm. and Ethereum were and and the and the Ethereum community were the first people to realise that it wasn't about exchange of value. It was a, it was about anything. So Ethereum thought, what if we put loads of things on the on the blockchain, not just an exchange of value, but any kind of contract which we can code okay. we can code into into the blockchain itself. A few years ago. Um, they announced the arrival of the DAO, the Digital Mm. Autonomous Organization, where all of the, it was an investor-led kind of company, really, in effect, where you put money in and you got voting rights and you would make decisions and you would make investments. But rather than it being a normal company with articles association and directors and executives and everything else, um, all of it was going to be on the blockchain. So a really, really large, complex, smart contract, as they called it, would sit on the blockchain, totally decentralized. And that was, I think, the kind of equivalent in human organization of someone going into outer space. It was a completely new, <laughs> different kind of kind of endeavor exploration. We'd never really tried to build anything like this before. Now, the DAO actually was a tremendous failure. But the, the, the point was that you could set up something which looked like a normal company in an entirely decentralized way, resting entirely in the code. And that, I think, is just kind of pointing towards the kind of things which we might use blockchain for in the future. 
Fran. Yeah, and I think pulling that, funny faces. I Wait, think some of the other it. interesting things that we might uh, do is for some kind of asset registers. So for the moment, if you own, if you're lucky enough to own a house and land, uh, those are well, they're now electronic deeds. Used to Anyone? be paper deeds. Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> but what about if? land's deeds were stored on a blockchain. And so when you then transact land, rather than having to go to a solicitor and pay thousands of pounds for this process of moving this file from one place to the other, uh, what about if you could just instruct the blockchain to move from me to Fran uh, this, the ownership of this particular piece of land? So that's, so that's one idea that people are exploring, and everything from land to provenance of diamonds so that you can certify that diamonds are conflict-free, things like that. Um, another really interesting application is in the whole kind of platform uh, ecosystem. So um, the kind of platform co-op version of Spotify, which is called Resonate, yeah, um, they in fact put everything, so not only the terms and conditions that the artists, the labels and everybody signs up to are all encoded in the blockchain, every single listen that is done is encoded in the blockchain. And so any artist label can basically audit the, the, the company to make sure they're being paid the right amount, that they're respecting their rights and all these kind of things. So um, Resonate are using it as a kind of, kind of radical transparency uh, initiative. So, um, and those are just a few of the kind of the interesting ideas that are being brought up as we start to think about the, the next iteration of what blockchain and the, and, and the token that will sit in there uh, will, could do. This is like, uh, it's very interesting. It's also confusing. Yeah. And I feel like we're just all getting very excited. And that is wonderful. But, <laughs> but I want to... Leave people listening and be like, what are you talking yeah, about? Main, so I was like, just going to... Yeah. Can I just Fran's try and simplify something. it? Yes. And yes. I was just going to say that transparency is a key design feature of blockchain. And I think the way to think about it is it's like information transfer. Its possibilities are endless when you think of it in that way of like transferring information in different ways mm. so I want to I, I, I want each of you to do a kind of like 30 second like hot seat explainer on what the potentials of this project are for real people who don't know anything about what you're talking Bitcoin about Bitcoin or blockchain blockchain let's let's go with blockchain that feels like something that people are more excited about Carl is like desperate to come in dive in Initial coin offerings, people can both invest in and raise money far more easily than ever before. Like the raising of capital has always been very centralised. You know, you need to get venture capitalists in. And actually, most people couldn't invest in things like art or, or games or uh, new companies very easily at all. They relied on their banks or their pension funds to do that kind of thing. Now it's unbelievably easy to do something called initial coin offering, an ICO, which um, gives you a share in the endeavour in ways which are kind of quite clearly described. So I think it's kind of opening up capital for both um, investors and raisers of money in ways which is genuinely quite democratising. Okay, so the slogan there would be, if you care about something, it's easier to invest in it because of this thing. And if you care about something, it's also easier to raise money for it. Okay, great. Fran, 30 seconds for the real people. Um, so I think currently... It's like disruptive thinking and it might not be okay. affecting everyone right now. But, for example, you know, we're in Positive Money and NGO trying to campaign to make our money and banking system serve a like fair, democratic, sustainable economy. People are just like, that's really wonky. What are you talking about? But as soon as Bitcoin came on the scene, they were like, oh, like Bitcoin. Mm. And it's very disruptive in the conversations that you can have about mm. everything from 
currency to the land registry, whatever. All right, so the final segment that we're going to do is what next for digital currencies? Uh, so we like on our show to get guests to make predictions and then we throw them back in their faces later on when they're not here to defend themselves, which is great. Um, so what do you predict is going to happen with digital currencies in the next few years? Will they continue to soar in value? Will new ones take the place of current ones? Will government start to use them? Uh, I'm turning it over to you. We're going to start with Duncan. I think that the future is really exciting. So I've been talking a l for a long time about the need to have uh, to move towards what we have as a, an ecosystem of currencies that we can use rather than what we have now, which is kind of more of a monoculture of currency. And I think there's going to be a huge benefit to society in moving towards this kind of multiple ecosystem of currencies. And, and one of the things that's going to happen is that there's going to be really interesting experiments with, uh, with the blockchain. So, for instance, there's already one called SolarCoin, which rewards the production of solar energy with with money and so linking the idea of energy production and money so i think the future is bright for digital currencies we are not going to be putting this genie back in the bottle but um i don't think that that's the same as saying that uh, we can expect cryptocurrencies and digital currencies generally to vastly increase in value what we need is them to increase in utility uh, not in value interesting fran yeah, so building on that is the concept of money and payment as a utility. I'm excited about the move of central banks looking at digital currencies as a way of actually increasing financial inclusion and potentially moving towards a public payment system. So we now have the technology for everyone to kind of hold money safe at a, a central bank, of central banks to issue a digital form of cash currently all of the digital money we use is created by commercial banks. Potentially, it could happen in the next few years. Sweden is the is the front runner. And it could be a massive step towards a much fairer, more democratic money and payment system. Sounds good. Carl, are you going to bring some positivity? <laughs> you're looking at me like you're not. I think we've got a big conflict. Oh, God. I think we've got a big conflict ahead. I mean, we have to remember, you know, that the point of Bitcoin was to challenge the nation state. And the nation state is coming under a lot of challenge at the moment from lots of different kinds of digital technology. Um, and I think we have a big conflict ahead over who controls Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and what its impact on the nation state will be. Um, I can see a future where the use of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies massively undermines the nation state's tax base. Mm. Um, I think it already is happening. Um, and in those situations, I see no option for central banks and the nation state other than to move very coercively to bring it under reg regulatory control and to be very hard on the use of uh, cryptocurrencies outside of kind of particular sanctioned parameters. Um, the nation state kind of is slow to act. Um, it's one of the slowest kinds of actors that we have in society when it comes to disruptive technologies, but slowly and surely nation states have proven in the past to be able to overwhelm and overcome disruptive technologies which seek to undermine them uh, and i kind of suspect that'll be the case of bitcoin i think at the moment it's moving too quickly i don't i'm not sure they know what to do i'm not sure they know how they can do what they need to do but i think a combination of the fact that they control the legal system and they control the regulatory system means that in time nation states will bring cryptocurrencies to heel it's too dangerous technology for nation states not to do that. 
Okay, so we can be re- rest assured that it's not going to be some kind of Mad Max scenario where everything's <laughs> terrible and scary and yeah. Okay, so thank you again, Carl, Fran and Duncan for coming on the podcast this week. It's been weird. It's been weird, but also really wonderful. Uh, buy that's Bitcoin. crypto for you. <laughs> Carl, just keep going up to 100k. Hashtag going buy all the way up. Bye bye. <laughs> sell sell bye bye sell sell exactly pump and dump <laughs> oh my god stop pump and dump Duncan any last slogans whale first? wallet whale I wallet. like the whale wallet that's definitely going to be my yeah because uh, a whale is a large animal and now I know that great so if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you can't be bothered with that why not tell a friend uncle it's weird your mum or a taxi driver about the show everybody's welcome at the weekly econ pod the Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>